Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Hi everyone, welcome to The Next Normal in collaboration with America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna, and I hope that everyone's been taking very, very good care of themselves and they're navigating these times as best as they can. And each time I get a chance to sit and be with you, it feels like miracles are happening between us, there's no doubt. Did you know that it is estimated that there are roughly 4 million Indian Americans in the United States today? And many have made their mark in various fields such as medicine, science, engineering, business, information technology, and philanthropy, to name a few. Joining us today is a very special guest, M.R. Rangaswamy, who has been a leader in helping to bridge East and West, along with his many other accomplishments. So let me tell you a little bit about Mr. M.R. Rangaswamy. He's an entrepreneur investor, corporate eco-strategy expert, community builder, and philanthropist. Recognized as a software business expert, he participated in the rapid expansion of Silicon Valley. He was named to the Forbes Midas list of investors and also recognized by CRN as one of the top technology executives. He's also the founder of Diaspora, a nonprofit community of powerful global Indian leaders from diverse professions who are committed to inspiring the diaspora to be a force for good by providing a platform to collaborate, engage, and catalyze social change. Let's welcome Mr. Rangaswamy. Mr. Jenna, great to be with you. Such an interesting journey you have. Quite an interesting story of triumph and success and a middle-class kind of upbringing in the whole journey of life. Could you tell us a little bit about what has brought you to where you are? Yeah, I would say I grew up in a middle-class family in Chennai, India. And, you know, life is full of surprises. We have highs and lows, but in my case, my lows came at an early age. My father passed away when I was 10. That was a shock. And I think if I'm right, he's the only person I've seen die in front of me in my entire life. And this happens at age 10. So it was a rude awakening for me. I dealt with it in different ways, but I think it kind of strengthened me for the rest of my life to kind of take risks and do things because I've always felt if something terrible like that can happen and you can recover from it, you can recover from anything. So So at the age of 10, did you become the man of the house or did you have an older brother at that time? No, I had other siblings, so I was fortunate that my mother, who was a rock in my life, took care of me, protected me, nurtured me, and so did my siblings. I was the baby of the family. So where I am today, I owe this to my mother and to my siblings. Beautiful. 
So at what age did you come over to the United States of America and what was happening in your life at that time? I was in India and I grew up there in Chennai and initially tried to be an accountant, got an accounting degree. I didn't like that. Then I got a law degree. I didn't like that. And one of my older siblings was living in the U.S. and he came for a visit and he said, hey, why don't you come to the U.S.? I really didn't have any aspirations or desire to go there, but he made that offer and I took him up on it. So I applied to do my master's in business, my MBA, got into a program here, and I came at the age of 21 to the U.S. Wow. Was there anything that was sort of scary for you at that time, or did you feel the support of family when you came over? There was definitely family support, but the Indian government at that time didn't give you much support. And that's why I'm in that book that you call The $8 Man, was because people like me who left India to study were given a foreign allowance of $8 to leave the country. (laughs) So we had to come here, and thanks to my brother who supported me early on in my education, and then, of course, I got scholarships and assistantships to finish out my program. But the initial money had to be a loan I took from him. Yeah, it was a high-risk kind of an experience because I was fortunate an immigrant who didn't have to come to the U.S. because I was being persecuted in my home country or I didn't have money or a life. I came on my own volition, but it was still a risk I took. And I'm so happy that I did take the risk because it made me who I am today. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I've loved about America is you can come here and reinvent yourself almost at any age, whether you're 21 or 51. There's just this energy here that gives you permission to thrive as much as you can. And one of the things I've learned or watched our culture is we really put in the work to get to wherever we think we're supposed to get. So with $8 in your pocket, your brother's here, you have to earn a living, you've got to go to school. Did you have a mentor at that time that you felt like was really guiding you and moving you forward? Because I know in a lot of your conversations, you say that you really wish you had one, but was there a quiet mentor somewhere, someone that you used to look at in the media, in the newspaper and magazines and say, yes, I'd like to become like that? I didn't have a role model or a mentor at that time. I think for most of my life, good or bad, I've been a wanderer. And so I take risks. I do things. I haven't really set too many goals in life where I said, I got to be X by this time. So I came here. I went to school. And then I was fortunate to get an assistantship and take a summer job and do all these things. But at that time, I really didn't even know or realize I needed to have a mentor. So it's only when I did get a mentor, I said, my God, I wish I had someone to go talk to about my trials and challenges. I've basically been a wanderer in that sense. Mm. Well, it's gotten you very far. There are a lot of young boys and girls who are looking up to you as a mentor now. How does that make you feel? It's a lot of gratitude that I'm able to give back. I've got about half a dozen mentees at this time, on and off. Young people come to me once every six months or three months, talk about their lives. I give them counsel and advice. It feels so good to give back and see these people move along in life, become successful, achieve their goals. So I get a lot out of doing it. Yeah, I can see. 
So you came up with the phrase angel donors, and then Forbes just kind of took that and went wild with it. So you were the one that started up with this whole idea of an angel donor. Could you tell us a little bit about where that came about and what's happening with it today? Yeah. So like I said, I didn't set too many goals, but there was one goal that I said I wanted to be independent at age 40, but I missed that by a year. So at age 41, I kind of stepped off technology and corporate life and had the opportunity to do whatever I felt like doing. And my initial interest was to help startup companies in Silicon Valley with capital and advice and mentorship. So I didn't know that that was going to be called angel investing. I guess the way the word got coined was they felt we all had a halo above our head. You know, like angels, we came to rescue people like that movie, A Wonderful Life. You know, some angel shows up and says, hey, do you really want to do this? You know, let me help you, right? And the Wall Street Journal found out about me, and they had a reporter follow me for two days to find out what I did as an angel investor. Then the reporter wrote the article, sent it to the editors, and the editor said, this is such an interesting article, I want to put it on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And that was what I call my 15 minutes of fame when I was on the front page of the journal describing me as an angel investor and describing what I did. So really what I did was to meet with young companies where there were two entrepreneurs and a PowerPoint deck at that time who wanted to change the world. They wanted to start a company that did something interesting and I would take a look at it. And if I found it interesting to myself, I would put some money into the company, but I also would give my time and mentorship to make that successful. So that is what angel investing was in 1996. Today, there are hundreds of thousands of angel investors who put money into startups and help companies. But when Mm -hmm. I did it, it was kind of an unknown area. How old were you in those days? Uh, I was 41 when I started doing that. Wow. So when you actually reached that point where you were like, I'm done, I'm good, then at 41, another chapter opened up for you. Yeah. To be an angel investor. And it was a fun thing to do. Looking back at it, it was great timing. I didn't know it was great timing. But in 96 to 2000, anybody could have been an angel investor and made millions of dollars because Silicon Valley was going through this growth expansion. Yeah, they sure were. So, you know, when you're an angel investor, you see a company, you look at the employees, the founders, you look at their passion, their drive, and you see the potential. Many people invest in organizations or companies that don't make it. What do you do when your angel investment just didn't make it? What were some of your thoughts and how did you rebound from it? Well, you know, as an angel investor, you are in a privileged position. As an entrepreneur, you're not. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you start one company and you rest on the success or failure of that company. As an angel investor, I get to invest in 10 companies. I only need one of them to be successful. So it's a very different position. I want all 10 to win, but you know statistics show that nine out of 10 fail. So Mm. all I know is if I do 10 deals, one deal is gonna be a winner and that'll pay for the nine failures, right? Mm. So I'm in a privileged position in that sense. You know, I could lose five or six and it's a tax write-off and you feel bad for the entrepreneur. And many of them try again, because that's kind of the operating procedure in Silicon Valley is you try a few times. And I (laughs) 
had the opportunity to do that myself because in my career, I was with my first startup. It went from zero to, I think, eight million in three years, and then it went bankrupt, chapter 11. I tried again, same kind of thing. It went to 30 million and went bankrupt again. And I was lucky enough, the third time I tried, it was a home run. I went to a company, we took it public, and it was a big success. But you never know in life. Is this the first, second, third, tenth? No idea. Yeah, no, just keep going for it. You ever missed a great deal? You ever missed somebody who came to you for support and just says, I'm telling you we're going to make it, and you just like, no. But then later on, you realize they became a great success? Absolutely. I How did you feel? I missed one entrepreneur because he was so cocky, so much bravado, and he said, I'm raising money, put money into my company. And it was such an outrageous valuation for a startup. So I walked away from a deal where he was asking for a valuation of $100 million. And a company was doing $1 million in revenues. I'm like, this is nuts, right? I walked away from the deal. Lo and behold, the company is highly successful, goes public, and is worth $40 billion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, how did I miss Heartbreaking. that? But this story has a good ending because he then went on to do another company after the first one, and he called me on that one and said, you know what, I'm doing this new thing. Would you like to be my advisor? And I said, Keith, anything you do, sign me up. (laughs) And then this company has gone public now, and I'm glad that I have shares in the company. And this company is worth now 50 or $60 billion. Wow. You know, you win some, you lose some, but in this case, at least I made something out of it. Beautiful. Congrats. So let's talk about Indiaspora. What gave you the inspiration to start it? And how were you able to successfully create this network bringing together powerful global Indian leaders from diverse professions? Yeah. So Indiaspora was uh, my way of giving back to our community. You know, there are about 4 million of us who live in the U.S., about 30 million of us who live across the world as people of Indian origin. And what I felt was, you know, we needed to do something more than be a successful tech executive or a successful doctor or a lawyer or a business person. The community needed to be all inclusive of people who are artists and academics and nonprofit leaders and bring everybody together. And we didn't have such an organization. And my passion is to build networks. So Indiaspora is the third network I've built. I've got a network of CEOs in tech called Enterprise. I've got another group of leaders in the sustainability space called EcoForum. And this was the third network that I started. And this was more based on my ethnicity than anything else. And the reason I did it was I felt it needed to be an all-inclusive community. Philanthropy needed to be a big focus of our community because We have come to this country, worked hard, made money, become successful, but we need to be known as givers and not takers. And I felt that our community had done enough of taking, it was time to give. And that's what led me to kind of bring the community together with the view to give back, to give where you live, to give to India, to do more than just making money. Tell us a story about the second inaugural ball of President Barack Obama being elected president again. And you had the thought of bringing Indians together in Washington, and many of them were telling you, 
You can't do that for conferences. There are a million conferences out there. What do you think you're going to do? But some brilliance clicked in you, and you thought of a way of making that happen. Could you share with us a little bit about that story? Because I find it so inspiring. Sure. So stepping back a year, we did that in 2013. In 2012, when I created in Diaspora, one of our aspirations was, if we're so successful, making so much money, we're 1% of the U.S., how come we have no influence in the political sphere? And so in Diaspora, as a nonprofit, can't donate or endorse candidates. But our entire network in 2012 said, we're going to write checks to anybody of Indian origin who stands for office, whether it's a Bera or Krishnamurti or Kanna or Jayapal or Kamala, we're going to write checks. And so we started with that in mind. And then suddenly, you know, Barack Obama was reelected and we also had one person of Indian origin to win that election. It was Dr. Ami Bera from Sacramento won the election. So we said, wow, this is a great occasion. Why don't we do something in D.C.? And we said, let's call up the hotel. Let's do this stuff. And again, I took risks. And so I said, let's do this and see what happens. And lo and behold, we took the Mandarin Oriental, the five-star hotel in D.C. that you know, and 1,300 people showed up. It was this pent-up demand within the community that we needed to be in the political sphere, right? President Obama sent his sister to be his surrogate at our event. And it was fantastic to have her and 50 senators and mayors and governors and congresspeople and stuff. So it was a fabulous success from the media and getting together and influencing politics. But that was a good part of it. The bad side of things was Indians can be frugal. We want to not pay that much money for things. You know, this is part of, (laughs) I guess, the Indian culture. I think because we're still thinking in rupees. In rupees, exactly. (laughs) I was like... Oh my God, the ticket to this ball is $200. It's so much money, you know? So we ended up doing this event. The negative and little unknown side is we lost money in mm. this event. Why do so, you think that is? Because I'm in DC. I know how we are here. What everyone just wanted to be seen, to be a part of it. They promised they were going to give, but they never gave. Or what was uh, they, the reason they, behind uh, that? They wanted to be seen and give, but they were only willing to give us $125, $150. Whereas they really needed to give us $500, you know. So they didn't see the value, I guess, in why they were showing up and why they were writing checks. But other communities would have similar presidential balls, pay $500 to go Mm -hmm. to a similar event. And we are the first one for the Indians. So we were just, I think, maturing as a community. And uh, we took the risk. Uh, We succeeded, but we also had to pay a price. Sure. I understand that very well. (laughs) So as you look at the period that we're in, it's quite uncertain. Nobody really knows what's going to be happening as a result of the pandemic. What are your views about, let's say, the next five years? So I think the pandemic brought out so much good in our community. We started a program a year ago called Chalo Give for Let's Give. And we raised enough money last year to pay for 8 million meals in India to migrant workers, but also to the food banks in the U.S. You know, we had this problem. Then the second wave of COVID happened, and we were able to raise almost $5 million this time, and another 5 to $10 million through other third parties by collaborating with them to just send to India, you know? So our community rose up in big numbers, big dollars to give back both in the U.S. and to India. 
So I think the giving part of it opened up because of the pandemic, right? So when I look at the next five years, I'm very hopeful if we have a crisis, we have a need, our community is going to open up our wallets and help us give back to India, to give back to soup kitchens in the U.S., whatever it takes. So I think this pandemic is going to be one of these that go up and down, up and down. It's not going away. So we need to be prepared for the next wave of whatever happens, and we need to be prepared to help our community members, Americans, Indians, it doesn't matter who you are, we need to be prepared to help. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that you're known for is your optimism and desire to be a catalyst for change, which is conveyed in your many inspirational speaking engagements and demonstrated by your life of service. What's the genesis behind this passion to give back? Because not everybody really gives back, but you are. This came over time, but I think every one of the three networks I've started, EcoForum or Enterprise or Indiaspora, the ethos of the organization, the culture is to help each other. So it's not to say how great you are and how fantastic all the things you've done, but how can you help other people? So that's part endemic in all the organizations I've started is you help each other, no quid pro quo. You don't expect anything back. Maybe you get good karma somehow, but you don't expect that either. So when you set that as the goal, as the culture, as the value system, you just help people. You just help everyone. So that's how I lead my life. If someone calls me and they need help, I help them. Hopefully they're not scamming me. I don't know if they do or not. But I think having that mind of someone's calling you, you help them and you don't expect anything back. That's how I live my life. And that brings me a lot of gratitude and makes me feel better as a person. That's how I run my life. I'm confident of that. If I ever needed help, I would call people and someone's going to help. Yeah, the law of cause and effect, no? So how do you take care of yourself? How do you keep your mind optimistic and happy and powerful? Any particular secret? Yeah, I'm an optimist. So even when I see a problem, I look for the solution. And so, you know, I don't look at a problem and go, oh, my God, we can't overcome this. I look for the solution to the problem. I've always been that way. And like I said, I go back to my childhood. If I can lose my father at age 10 and at age 41 become independent to do whatever I want to do in life, that's nothing I can't conquer. You know, it just gives me that strength to say, if I can go through that horrific experience, come out of it, everything else seems easy. You know? Wow, I don't know what I'd do. My mother's with me and she's got dementia and ever so often I, know. I just look at her and I get a little emotional and I'm still not sure why. And I don't know if it's because I've lost my best friend, a parent, my business partner, a spiritual guide. But every time I look at her, MR, it's like, I don't know, something comes over me. So can you imagine maybe that time when I, I do have to bring her body back into ashes and put it somewhere where it can be sacred, but I wonder if that's what I'm seeing or feeling, but to lose a parent at 10, I don't even think there are even words for it. That's what's been my story, and that's why taking risks, giving back is just part of what I do. Yeah, yeah. So what's the message that you'd like to leave with everyone as we come to a close of our wonderful time together? Yeah, I would say take risks. 
a lot of us find obstacles and we're not able to overcome it. Just because the first time you fail, don't step back again into your boundaries. You know, it might take you two or three attempts. In my case, like I said, to be successful in business took me three attempts. Some people, it's taken five attempts. So don't give up on taking risks, stepping out of your comfort zone. That's something I tell people. But don't take stupid risks. You know, I'm not telling you to write a check that cleans out your bank account, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. But do take the risk within means. The second thing I say is help people, even in a small way, whether it's your time, a half an hour of your time or a few dollars. I mean, just help people because we all are here for a purpose. And it's not like you're better than me and I'm better than someone else. We're all equal. And we all have our skills and our strengths and our weaknesses. So no one is better than anybody in this world. So help each other. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mr. Rangaswamy, for your inspiration, determination, continuation. I'm sure there are many people who are really going to find a lot of insights in our conversation today. Thank you so much for giving back to the world. Thank you for having me. Wow, everyone, wasn't that fantastic? Don't you love to hear driven personalities like Mr. Wangosami? Keep telling you about life and how even if you failed, you go back up and you keep running. Let your life be a life of change. Make your life be something of good. Let it contribute to humanity rather than take. Let me know if you've enjoyed our show today by dropping us a comment or a message. And know that no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to love each other the same. Take care, everyone. Om Shanti. Hi, Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.